This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is David Waltermeyer, the technical lead for OSCAL at NIST, and Melitza Green, the compliance subject matter expert at TELUS Corporation. Dave and Melitza, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. Let me start off by saying neither of you are chief information officers, and that's okay, because <laughs> today we're going to actually talk about something that CIOs really should care about, and really anyone in the technology world should care about, something called OSCAL, and, and it's Open Security Controls Assessment Language. And Dave, I'm going to ask you to start off by telling us what OSCAL is, and why should people start caring about it, and, and they're, why they're going to start hearing about it more and more. OSCAL is the Open Security Controls Assessment Language. It's effectively a set of... Um, seven data models. A data model is a way of representing information um, in a way that computers can, can read and process. And in OSCAL, we have seven models that work on expressing control information, how controls are implemented in an information system, how controls are to be assessed in an information system, and the results of that assessment. And this information can then be used to help automate um, much of the um, control assessment process. This is of great value um, because it helps to reduce the effort needed to review uh, assessment packages as part of um, um, an accreditation process. The accreditation process we're talking about here, obviously, is FedRAMP, the Federal Risk Authorization Management Program for Cloud Security Services, and something that NIST is working very closely with the FedRAMP PMO. Give me a sense at how the data models work and how does it reduce the, the effort needed to review assessment packages? FedRAMP will review a package that is submitted um, by a cloud service provider. And typically that review involves an assessor looking into the information that is provided. And today, prior to, to OSCAL, um, a lot of that review requires, you know, sometimes a week or more of the assessor's time to really dig in and look at the information that's provided in the assessment. And a lot of that information that they're analyzing is really checking to see if um, required information is being provided uh, within the, the package that the cloud service provider is, is submitting. And this requires a lot of you know, sort of bookkeeping. And that's something that um, computers are actually really good at. And so the approach with OSCAL is representing this information in a way that um, computer programs can analyze the, um, the package, and they can do a lot of the counting and quality checking and that sort of thing on behalf of the assessor, saving a significant amount of time. So what would normally take an assessor weeks to do, an OSCAL tool can perform in seconds. You actually answered my question there because I was going to ask you <laughs> what, what type of savings we're talking about here, and then that means a package that goes to the Joint Authorization Board or the, the FedRAMP, the PMO, or third-party assessment organizations looking at can then go from, well, it's a week to we check all the boxes and then more time, more time, more time to get it through the, the real process. This can be done in a few minutes or a few hours, and then it gets to that next step much more quickly. That, that's really the, the key benefit here. Right. One way of sort of summarizing that is OSCO allows machines to do machine-worthy tasks and frees up humans to actually focus on improving the security of systems, things that they're good at. Somebody would say, this sounds a lot like robotics process automation. It sounds like very similar to what some, some agencies are using machine learning AI for. Is OSCO part of that family of emerging technologies? So OSCO is a structured way of presenting information to computers, um, and it 
um, analytic processes such as um, you know artificial intelligence algorithms could benefit from that structured information. Let me bring in uh, Melitska here from Telos. Walk me through a little bit of why OSCAL matters for your from your perspective as a vendor and especially for cloud security. To really understand the OSCAL benefits, you have to understand how complex the cloud environments are. I mean, we're talking not only about multi-tenant environments, but also uh, when you look at one stack, you see different ownership between those stacks, right? So each of these environments are tracking vulnerabilities and the, their continuous compliance using different tools, which usually have their own way of outputting data, data. There's no easy way to move that data from one tool to another tool, right? Which then you have, you have to export something out, out of your tool and then import in another one, which is you immediately introducing a human error right there. Plus, it's not a real-time reviewing of the evidence. So now having a standard way to move this data between different tools saves a, a tremendous amount of time and effort for vendors as well as customers, right? Ability to easily quickly move it between tools brings more context to uh, fighting the threats within the cloud security. You bring up this idea of moving data. Now, a vendor like Telos, which you, obviously you guys are focused in the cybersecurity world, is this something that is implemented on your end or is this something that's implemented on the, on the cloud provider, the CSP's end, or, or both? If we're talking just OSCAL itself, it will be implemented on the either GRC tool that, you know, either exact GRC tool, or maybe it'll be on the um, authorizing official side, which they're using, you know, another tool that they're assessing their authorization packages, right? So that's the, the idea is to move the authorization package, export it in XML format using OSCAL schema, and easily move it to another tool, whatever, you know, the authorizing official is using uh, in order to review it, assess it again, and then approve it. So that's the, that's the date movement of data that we're talking about. But in addition to just having an authorization package, that's quite a complex process too, right? You, not only that you have documents, supporting documents to talk about your system to really describe how you're implementing security controls, but you also have, uh, in addition to that, you're providing evidence that come from different tools, right? You have to have your vulnerability scan, you have to have your pen test that comes, again, using multiple tools again, and then reporting that into federal, or if we're talking about federal, we're reporting it into the federal specific templates. Well, now we're going to go away from having templates and word documents and stuff like that into a machine-readable format that anyone can really uh, easily either assess through or write a script that can um, assess against this OSCAL package. All right. That's very helpful to understand because it's, it's that whole idea of instead of the old move everything to an Excel spreadsheet or, as you said, templates or, or Microsoft Word document, it's just something that can easily be read by the tool, the machine. And David, where are we today with OSCAL? And, and it's been a bit of a road to get there. I know just looking back over doing some research for our interview, I know this is something that the Federal PMO and NIST has been working on for quite a while. We've been working on OSCAL for about uh, four years now. At this point, we're um, working on wrapping up an initial 1.0 release. At this point, we're looking to do a pilot of the draft that, we, um, that we've put out, and we're making sure that we have everything right before we do that 1.0 release, which we're expecting to, to do later this weekend. So at, at the moment, we're working with FedRAMP to... Um, pilot this from a, an OSCAL-based assessment perspective. FedRAMP's been a great collaboration partner um, through the process of uh, developing OSCAL. They've provided OSCAL with a lot of development resources, as well as a rich set of use cases, system implementation examples, 
and various process artifacts that we've been working to support. So we're starting now um, to work with FedRAMP and a handful of cloud service providers who are interested in submitting their FedRAMP packages you know, directly in the OSCAL format. NIST is doing all we can to help facilitate this type of pilot, and we're using this as an opportunity to get feedback on OSCAL and to make improvements. From a timing standpoint and from a pilot standpoint, you're looking at, you said, a few, a handful of cloud service providers who want to submit their packages in OSCAL. Do we know how many yet? And will be the type of pilot that is, okay, we'll do it, then we'll step, step back and look at it. Or a lot of times you hear pilots are, we're going to iterate as we go along and we know that this will work. It's just how to, how to smooth the edges, shape it a little bit. What kind of pilot do you think this will be? Mostly, I think more of the latter. We're using this to sand off any rough, rough edges. And, you know, the intent is to, you know, continue to iterate OSCAL on, on an ongoing basis. We want to do this 1.0 release um, in, in the near future, later this year. And, um, and then we want to continue to um, incrementally add features um, and address any issues with OSCAL on an ongoing basis. On that note, let's take a quick break. My guests today are David Wattmeyer, the technical lead for OSCAL at NIST, and Melitza Green, the compliance subject matter expert at TELUS Corporation. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are David Wattmeyer, the technical lead for OSCAL at NIST, and Melitza Green, the compliance subject matter expert at TELUS Corporation. Do you get a sense of the, how, what this will do yet to the FedRAMP process? And I know your expertise is not necessarily in the FedRAMP world, that's the PMO, but just based on what you've seen from OSCAL, will it cut the process by 10%, by 20%, do you know yet? We're hoping to figure some of that out through the process. I do personally think that the, um, the, the, the time savings are gonna be you know, significant. One way of looking at this is, you know, OSCAL provides a, a considerable amount of flexibility. Um, it supports this aspect of continuous assessment of information systems um, that can be deployed to the cloud, to traditional data center environments, as well as enterprise um, environments as well. Um, but it also supports, you know, quite a bit of um, automation. It allows the data that is used in you know, typical assessment processes to be collected. So if you look at something like 837 revision two, you know, there's 47 different tasks that are defined in that document that organizations have to uh, support as part of their risk uh, management process. That's a lot of work for an organization to do. And for smaller organizations, that'll only be practical with a significant amount of automation. We're designing OSCAL to be able to support the type of automation that's needed to make up the resource gaps that organizations have you know, to support their security, privacy, and risk management capabilities. In many ways, that's actually great news because there's, we talk, we, you know, the cyber companies talk about automation all the time. And here is an example of a, of a standard of a tool that could really push forward that automation because no matter, imagine, do, does the data have to be in a specific format or is OSCAL because it's using XML, because it's using, it's, it's kind of open, open security, it can collect data from any tool. Help me understand that. Maybe this is something for uh, Malitska to jump in as well. In OSCAL, we actually support three different formats across the seven different models um, that we have. Um, we support um, XML, JSON, and YAML. And you know, these are all common data formats that are used in you know, tooling today. You know, one of the pitfalls that efforts like OSCAL often face is having to pick one, you know, one format. 
to the exclusion of others. And that often alienates you know, some segment of the tool vendor community or of the user community. We've made the conscious decision to support all three formats as a way to provide the most utility you know, to, you know, to our, our wide audience. And we provide the ability is to allow you know, data in one format to be easily converted without loss uh, to, the other, you know, to the other formats. We believe that this will provide you know, robust support uh, for our community and will allow us to avoid a lot of the pitfalls of having to pick one format. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add to that, actually, like from our perspective, uh, what currently is happening, especially when we look at our federal customers, um, if they're using Exacta to report the risk and create their package within Exacta, what happens, they have to export everything in the Word documents and Excel spreadsheets, right? And then they submit it to their AO. Sometimes what happens is that AO already has a risk management tool they're using, and now they want you to put all that information in their tool. If we had OSCO to just export that and to have one standard schema, right, that's going to be used across all the different tools, if you're going to ex export it and easily upload it into the agency tool, I mean, there is really, you know, short time um, that we're talking about, short lag uh, between that. Um, but if you're actually doing it as you're doing it right now, it's going to take you two to three weeks, which adds more to your authorization, which adds, you know, more time for you not making money because you're not authorized to accept any data in your system. And just to add to that, we recognize that we're in a transition period where organizations are working to adopt OSCAL, which means that you know, there's going to be a mixture of tools that are capable of importing um, OSCAL as well as um, individuals that will want to you know, use Excel spreadsheets and you know, Word documents you know, like they have been. Um, and so you know, part of what we're working with FedRAMP on producing are, um, are generators um, that can take OSCAL data and you know, build you know, Word documents and Excel spreadsheets as part of a transition strategy. I mean, it sounds to me, David, that you guys are really trying to think going forward, but also backward compatibility. You know, if you're a video game person, you know the frustration of buying a PS4 when your PS you can't play any of your PS3 games on it. I mean, it sounds like you guys are thinking through that a little bit, huh? Yeah, that's right. For <laughs> some reason, David, I don't think you're a, you, you're not a video game person. You didn't you didn't bite on my uh, <laughs> analogy there. No, I am. I've I've totally been bitten by that uh, by that process. And, and you know, I've also done a lot of standards work um, in you know the automation space. And um, you know, having a good transition path is you know key to the successful long term adoption of you know some standardization efforts. And so, recognizing that, we're definitely trying to cover those bases. Again, just hugely important. I was obviously kidding about the video game stuff, but I get it. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about Telos and other cybersecurity companies. Are you all starting to incorporate OSCAL model into your products and services? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you take a look, I think everybody's interested to see how they can e um, incorporate OSCAL, either just because they're forced to, because they have federal customers who are looking to move towards that direction, or because they're really genuinely interested to take the benefit of this capability. Our product currently supports a, a capability that we call um, essential data element, which is a machine readable XML output uh, of the authorization package from Exacta. So we can easily move from one Exacta packet or project to another Exacta project. And primarily we did this because um, some of our customers requested it because it was uh, way easier for them to move that data across the different projects versus as again, again, exporting it and the board and Excel especially and then hand jamming it into the Exacto. So this, this really brings the automation and reciprocity between agencies that are using Exacto 360. 
when it comes to OSCO, clearly we're already supporting something similar, right, at XML. OSCO is going to have a different schema. We're really excited to support that as well. And we're hoping that eventually we'll, you know, support OSCO only. That's going to be, you know, our standard language to support. We have it in our roadmap for the end of this year, so end of 2020. And just put a finer point on this too, you kept saying using Exacta. That's the product from Telos that people can use is- to... Sorry, that's, that's correct. So um, exactly is the risk uh, management and compliance platform that can be used to manage your, you know, your authorization packages, create a package, and then uh, conduct a continuous monitoring as well. All right, very helpful. Just in case if people are going, what's this exacta thing she, was, she keeps talking about? David, let me go back to, to something about this idea of, of OSCAL. And NIST is, is starting to use this for, for the looking at the data, but it's also worthwhile in, in, around testing validation capabilities. It's also working with, the, uh, you know, the, there's other things around besides sharing data. Isn't there that OSCAL can play a bigger role in? And one example I think that ties back to Melitza's um, previous comments is um, we're in a transition period um, from a, a control compliance perspective. You know, NIST is working on uh, creating a revision five of 853. And, you know, that means that, um, you know, every organization that's using 853 controls is going to have to consider, you know, updating to that new revision when it's finalized. And that means every tool is going to require those controls to be, you know, entered into the tool. System security plans are going to need to be updated to deal with, you know, changes to those controls to, you know, deal with new controls. You know, one of the things that we're working with, um, the team that manages 853 at NIST is um, we're publishing 853 as uh, OSCAL um, you know, catalog, as well as the, the baselines that are associated as OSCAL profiles. And this allows um, tools to um, import that information automatically, reducing a, a significant amount of effort and also reducing human error you know, through data entry. We believe that if, um, if, if that sort of approach is um, applied that, you know, savings in the millions could be um, exhibited across the industry. That's huge because I know every time that NIST does a revision of 853, as you said, it's a huge lift to update everything. Because uh, walk me through how that could work. If it's published as an OSCAL catalog, that means uh, Melitska and Telos could do what or an agency could do what when you talk about importing those controls, what does that walk me through what right. it looks like? Right. So you could go to the NIST site, you know, where the 853 controls are published. Um, and there's additional resources there that point to our OSCAL content for 853. So the person using a tool could download that file, um, point their tool to it, import that into their tool. And then immediately the tool is now aware of um, 853 revision 5. And so then we preserve the same IDs for controls, essentially, um, between revision four and revision five. So the content that was originally written against revision four you know, would be able to be merged with um, the, re- the revision five controls. Um, and then the organization could then look at um, you know, the, the differences between rev four and rev five and figure out how they need to update their system uh, documentation. Um, and that's something that, again, tools could help facilitate the process around. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And, and maybe, Melitska, could you also talk about the benefit of, of, of moving OSCAL and, or using OSCAL in with the 853? Do you also see that as a big help from your perspective? in the vendor community? Yeah, absolutely. When you take a look at um, our customers, they're usually not, you know, complying only with one regulatory compliance. There's multiple different frameworks that I have to comply with. 
and if everything and almost everything can map towards uh, NIST 853, and we have you know OSCAL um, catalog that can show and it's uh, authorized towards our and we can sh show how you can comply across multiple frameworks. Now it's going to save you so much more time when you're assessing your system, and if you can assess it continuously, assess it uh, against several requirements simultaneously. Now, I mean, we're talking about a humongous savings, not only money, but also your resources as well. So your personnel can now focus on actually security of, of your systems versus, you know, checking off the boxes of all the compliance things that you have to comply with. And then when it comes to that, like to any GRC tool, actually adding that data, just ingesting the XML format data and in, in a tool that is already speaking OSCAL is going to be, you know, matter of minutes versus we having, having our own team having to do the mapping, having to actually um, put it in, in the GRC tool, which is usually a lot of spreadsheets in the back end, pretty much. On a related note, we're, we're also working with, uh, the OSCAL team is also working with um, the International Organization for Standardization, which supports um, uh, the 27001 and 2 you know, set of controls. These are controls that are used internationally and sometimes within government, but more so internationally. And you know we're working with them to actually develop that control set in OSCAL as well. So you know the same tools that are built, you know, to import 853 controls will also be able to import um, you know the ISO 27001 and 2 controls, which are also going through a revision process right now. On that note, let's take a quick break. My guests today are David Wattmeyer, the technical lead for OSCAL at NIST, and Melitza Green, the compliance subject matter expert at TELUS Corporation. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are David Wattmeyer, the technical lead for OSCAL at NIST, and Melitza Green, the compliance subject matter expert at TELUS Corporation. Melitza, you bring up this idea of how OSCAL can you know, really save some resources from really improve how uh, kind of let, let the humans do the human work, let the machines do the machine work. And this is really what we're getting to here. I mean, when we, when we talk about cybersecurity these days and, and, and companies and or agencies bring up automation, orchestration, the need for AI, machine learning, you, you, you can ring off the buzzwords with me, I'm sure. But this is what it's all about. I mean, how, how does OSCAL get agencies further down that path to really have a limited set of resources, people focus on the most important parts of cybersecurity, which is the analysis. What we currently see, and we look at a FedRAMP, for example, agencies are very hesitant to sponsor a cloud service provider to go through this process because they know it's cumbersome, it's complex, it's going to take so much time, and you literally have to have your dedicated team that's going to be working on this, right? And so they don't want to commit to that. But we have OSCAL that can, you can easily assess through, you can sort through exactly and see what is really important to you. And another thing to really understand when it comes to agencies, each agency has their own mission that's slightly different. And that uh, kind of guides their risk you know, assessment and also uh, where they, where they want to implement security, right? So they have slightly different shift when we talk, when we talk about risk and security in general. And if they can easily use, a, let's say, a better package, and if, for example, there are uh, concerns about confidentiality of the data at rest, let's say, they want to know where it's implemented, what is used, is there any vulnerability associated with any of these controls, right? And if they easily just want to go and sort through, they can, you, you, they can do that with the OSCAL because now you can write a script to check all the controls that are associated with it. And then not only within the SSP, but all the supporting documents like your security assessment plan, 
or a security uh, report, security assessment report. So you can easily sort through and see everything that's associated with what you're concerned about, which right now you will have to go through documents, pages and pages, different evidence that you're looking for to see if everything is implemented by your standard. So this is where we really see that it's going to be way beneficial. The agencies are going to be more open to um, even sponsoring cloud service providers or reusing already um, authorized providers. Uh, CSPs, right? Because what happens when you submit your package to the Joint Authorization Board, you only receive a provisional ATO, which means every agency that wants to use you, they have to reassess you. And that is a lot of time and effort, and you need a team that's going to do that. But if you, if you can eliminate that time to, or minimize that time, right, from going from a one month to a week, I mean, we're talking about absolutely, yes, we're going to use the use, uh, FedRAMP and we're going to use FedRAMP authorized uh, cloud service providers, right? That's one of the biggest complaints I've heard about FedRAMP is this idea of just because you get a jab and you get through the jab process, it really just gives you kind of a license to hunt to go get a agency level of authorization. And even when the agency says, well, yeah, your jab approved, we still need to see all your documents. I imagine using OSCAL will, short, as you said, shorten that time because they can import it and look at it very quickly versus having to, you know, whether it's on paper or whether it's in some sort of, you know, Excel spreadsheet or Word document, I think, I think that's a huge benefit. At the same time, uh, and, and this is for either of you, what should agencies keep in mind as they're starting to apply the OSCAL framework as they're, what are, are there common challenges or potholes they need to avoid? David, you want to start us off? I think agencies best benefit from OSCAL through the integration of OSCAL into their tools. So, one area that the agency should look at is encouraging their GRC and you know compliance tool vendors to adopt OSCAL. You know, so that's something that I think they should uh, start on you know, today. You know, longer term, there's going to be a need for agencies to convert their legacy Word document-based you know system security plans and assessment plans um, into um, OSCAL-based you know artifacts, and this is going to require some effort. It effectively requires a process of enrichment because we're taking unstructured information that exists in a Word document, and we're trying to make it structured so that machines can you know, parse it and, and process it. It's challenging to create tools that, you know, that support this in a uniform way because every organization uses a slightly different you know, structure for their Word documents. You know, there's, there's really no standardized format. And so you know, this is something that agencies are gonna have to plan for and invest in. It's a one-time cost. Um, and once they do that, you know, then they'll have the enriched data that'll be much easier to maintain uh, going forward. So to that end, you know, the OSCAL team is working on a series of tutorials um, and some basic tools to help with this conversion process. I imagine NIST has not done any sort of cost view yet just because the version 1.0 is not done yet. So to say how much it will cost to take legacy documents and make them into OSCAL, we're not sure what that's going to be yet. Now, we've done some of that work ourselves. And, you know, we're talking days of work, you know, not like months or years. So that's a rough estimate of order of magnitude. And are there tools to help with your tools to get to OSCAL, meaning the grabbing the unstructured data and putting it into a structure? I imagine there's tools out there that help you do that in some way. There are, there's a whole boutique industry around, you know, sort of document parsing and, you know, natural language processing and, you know, those sorts of technologies that can, you know, take a Word document and convert it into some structured format. There's, I think, lots of opportunity in the tool industry to, you know, develop those tools like that uh, specifically for the OSCAL space. 
And Militsko, what's the things uh, your customers or, or your fellow people in the industry should keep in mind as, as we get closer to version one of Oscala and, and it gets to more broadly used? They need to start thinking about the, all the benefits that Oscala is going to bring. I know the initial probably work is going to, it might be, uh, you know, a lot of work to do at the beginning because now you have to move it into different, uh, you know, schema or a new, new standard schema. But if you're using a GRC tool that is already looking to adopt Oscal or is or has already adopted Oscal, this is, this is going to be easy for you, right? All you really do is push a button and now export it in the Oscal format. So um, that's what they need to really start looking into, all these different GRC vendors who are willing to support Oscal. And I think many of them will, including us. And, and also think about the benefits it's going to bring down the road. Think about other compliance regimens that you are going to have to comply with or you're already complying with and how is that going to benefit you and your organization, bringing you decrease in assessment labor and also ability to assess system continuously and um, have that consistent performance of, uh, of your system security compliance. Dave and Melitska, this is a great conversation. I learned a lot and I hope uh, my audience now understands what OSCAL is and, and we'll start moving towards it. So let me thank my guests. David Waltmeyer is the technical lead for Oscal at NIST, and Melitza Green is a compliance subject matter expert at Telos Corporation. David, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And Melitza, thank you so much for your time as well. Thank you very much, Jason. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we shift gears to talk about IT modernization at NOAA. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this part of the show, I play an excerpt of an interview my colleague Jory Heckman did with Roy Varghese, the NOAA Fisheries Chief Information Officer. How has this low-code technology improved continuity operations for NOAA Fisheries just during this pandemic and just with everything that comes with that? Just a quick background, and NOAA Fisheries is an organization of about 4,000 people working across the country with uh, researchers, uh, intergovernmental partners to ensure that the nation's marine ecosystems are healthy, as well as our natural resources are sustainably harvested. So maintaining continuity of operations for an organization that is uh, actively engaged in the global food supply chain, especially during this pandemic, is very important. First and foremost, we've got to make sure that the health and safety of our people are protected. That means transitioning to remote work uh, as a as you indicated, that's something that we have done uh, and uh, the pandemic forced us and we were prepared for that in certain ways. Specifically on the low-code, no-code platform area, our COOP uh, capability was uh, enabled because these type of platforms facilitates collaborations easily, enables us to automate workflows uh, and make tweaks, adjustments uh, rapidly and also be able to deploy products, software products, applications rapidly. Uh, so the, the idea of uh, agility uh, for mission continuity and mission needs, were, you know, we had to put it in practice very quickly. Certainly another big theme that I've been picking up on when it comes to this intersection of continuity operations and IT is that for the agencies that made IT modernization investments, in the past couple of years, those investments have paid dividends really right now. And certainly a lot of agencies got additional funding in the CARES Act to just do that, to ramp it up and scale that up very quickly. With that being said, how did the coronavirus pandemic impact 
the agency's IT modernization efforts. Yeah, I, I like to remind our folks that we do IT not because we love doing IT. We do IT because we want to bring together science and technology for the management of U.S. marine resources and their habitat. So it's about the mission, right? And the and the pandemic proves that our investments that we made earlier in the underlying technologies, the processes, and people were appropriate to some extent. And it, it proved the fact that some of the work that we've done to build a robust and resilient technology infrastructure was the right thing to do. Furthermore, the, the pandemic in, some, in, in this particular case have been a blessing for an IT practitioner such as me is, uh, is that we no longer have to make the case that migration to the cloud is a is an important strategic imperative. Pandemic proved that it is. We no longer have to make the case that we need to leverage data as a strategic asset. We no longer have to make the case that artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities are needed and must be leveraged to execute the mission. We no longer have to make the case that we need to break down silos, whether it be geographic or organizational, to bring together the best and brightest to solve the agency needs. So uh, the bottom line is that this COVID-19 pandemic uh, opened a lot of eyes in the organization to the art of the possibilities of how a modern collaborative government agency can execute its mission, despite the incredible challenges associated with the pandemic. So this modernization efforts that been uh, ideated and planned a few years ago I believe will be executed in the coming months. We're already executing months and years to come because the organizational culture has become more embracing of, of the technology modernization effort that was already underway. Drilling down into that a little bit further, you had mentioned cloud services a little bit in your response to that last question, but how did cloud services become more essential during the pandemic to drive these mission outcomes and to what extent did your organization leverage cloud services again to, to maintain this continuity operations? That's a great success story, and I'm happy to report that, that NOAA had the foresight to fully embrace the Google G Suite as our cloud-based email and collaboration platform years ago, when it was uh, viewed by some as a risky endeavor. But that foray into a cloud-based platform for our collaboration has enabled us to switch to a virtual work environment for our entire 19,000 NOAA workforce, and specifically the 4,000 or so fisheries workforce. Very seamless transition. Furthermore, just to be more specific about it, Google Video Meet or Google Meet wasn't something that we weren't using as heavily before the pandemic. We had the luxury of being able to meet face-to-face. And even initially, as you probably recall, uh, the first few video calls for folks who haven't used it regularly were a little bit uncomfortable. But now it's second nature. Everybody is using it. It's become the norm. So that's, that's on the collaboration side. We had already transitioned some of our core functions and applications to the cloud. As, as I mentioned earlier, our we are partners to the mission the, as, as part of the IT organization. We no longer have to make the case for the use of cloud, but rather we have to be the partners that enable the rapid adoption of cloud technologies to the mission areas. 
So, so what we are doing at Fisheries is that we're in the process of establishing a public cloud platform under a single FISMA system for new applications. So what that enables is that we, it lowers the barrier to entry or, and to cloud adoption by our program areas because we will address cybersecurity, identity and access management, contract, uh, contracting and billing, all those centrally. So the program areas can focus on building mission-specific applications under a single umbrella. And, and that's how I think we as IT partners can, can turbocharge uh, the, the program area, mission areas to fully leverage the promise of, of cloud technology. You know, good to see that 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 foresight has paid off, you know, years prior to this building, making these decisions in advance of something major like this happening. Uh, with that in mind, what have some of the biggest lessons learned been in your agency when it comes to the pandemic and the acquisition of technology? You were saying that you know, a lot of this happened uh, years before any of this even being uh, being on the horizon. But what are some of the lessons about technology implementation? The acquisition and implementation side of technology is something that I think often gets overlooked because we get dazzled with the, the latest and greatest in terms of technology and capabilities that the industry offers. But as a, as a government organization that needs to have the maximum flexibility to respond to these type of events and also the dynamic nature of the mission that you support, I think it's important that we have technology solutions and partners that also have that level of flexibility and agility. So what I mean by that is that we need to have, we need to be establishing contracts that give the flexibility and scalability that organizations such as ours need uh, in terms of ramping up licensing or, or professional services needed to support the changing needs. That's, that's one thing. So in terms of working with your acquisition partners to structure contract vehicles that meet your need. And I think in, in government, we're fortunate enough to have multiple ways to do that. Secondly, we also need to invest in, you know, we, you asked earlier about low code or no code platform, invest in platforms and technologies that, that are robust enough, flexible enough, and, and so that you can leverage as much of the cloud-native technologies as possible and scale as needed. Because in the, the, in the current world, we are a distributed workforce and we need, to, we, need to be, we need to be able to work together in a way that maximizes the value that is inherent in cloud-native technologies. And that only happens if, if the contracting, contracting vehicles and contracting structures accommodate that. So in the context of no fisheries, we'd already established contracts with those flexibility prior to this uh, because we knew the dynamic nature of our needs, mission needs. We didn't anticipate this horrific uh, pandemic, but we, our contracting office had worked with us to have built in the flexibility that we needed to react. So we can, for example, we can ramp up our support organization to all of a sudden virtually support almost double the capacity of people that were uh, working. So that was, that was important. And with, with regard to technology implementation, collaboratively developing solutions while working remotely isn't easy, but it is possible. So process automation using 
low-code platforms and, and, and robotic process automation will free up the time for people to work on mission areas. So for our workforce, what that means is that our workforce we need to be better prepared. That means recruiting, retaining, and reskilling our workforce to meet the needs of the, of the future. And lastly, I, I have to mention that we cannot overlook the need for change management. Uh, just because we're working remotely doesn't mean all the organizational change management issues can't, uh, can be ignored. And just to follow up on that point, um, that's a, that's a very, uh, buzzy word these days, reskilling. In the context of, of NOAA Fisheries, what, what kind of skill do you think the workforce, the IT workforce of, let's say, 10 years from now might need that they didn't have, say, 10 years prior to now? The needs for the IT workforce uh, for NOAA Fisheries probably reflect the needs of the greater IT community at large, because we also see a future where we're going to be a data-driven enterprise. And for that, that means we need folks, uh, we, we need our folks to be fluent uh, in technologies and processes and tools that can, that can do a better job of harnessing power of the data that we possess, as well as the data that's available in the, in the ecosystem out there. So we will see an increase in data data scientist type resources. And I think there'll be a lot of fluidity in the type of people that we will be re, uh, recruiting and retaining in the, in the years to come in, in the area of data science. We will also have uh, increased capacity in terms of increased need uh, in terms of folks with uh, uh, cloud understanding, knowledge, and expertise. And it's not just the traditional technical skills, skills, but also understanding how to manage and navigate the various cloud environments out there and to be able to play the inherently governmental functions. That's on the, on the federal workforce side. And on, on the specific cloud technologies, we will need experts uh, that, can, that can support the migration and transition to cloud technologies. And I think that will be, that will be another shift that we will see. And thirdly, I would say the cybersecurity workforce is going to continue to grow, but they will they will also be more cloud savvy and AI ML savvy because uh, cyber cybersecurity is increasingly leveraging the capabilities of algorithms to be able to do uh, monitor, diagnose, detect, and take action to the various threats and vulnerabilities that are facing, facing our enterprise. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a conversation my colleague Jory Heckman had with Roy Varghese, the NOAA Fisheries CIO. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.